Another rather interesting and eventually successful quest was a search for a noted Virginian, uh, the grave of a noted Virginian, Robert Selden Garnet, the first general officer on either side to die on the battlefield. Killed at Carrick's Ford, now in West Virginia, in July 1861, in an action which you will all remember and are familiar with, Garnet's body was delivered to his friends and relatives for burial. I traced the remains to Baltimore via Washington where they were temporarily interred but later removed. There the trail grew cold. All the Baltimore cemetery authorities could tell me was that he had been temporarily buried there but they didn't have any idea where his body uh, had been sent or the coffin and they had no idea when it had been sent elsewhere. Then became a question of employing deductive reasoning in the Holmesian manner. Garnet was born in Essex County, which I need not tell any of these Virginia gentlemen, lies on the south side of the Rappahannock River below here. As you all know, at this stage of the war, all of northern Virginia, including that area, was within the Confederate lines. Why then, the question propounded itself, ship the remains to Baltimore, that is to say, northward. Furthermore, the clerk of court of Essex uh, stated that he didn't know of Garnet's burial on any of the nearby ancestral estates. In fact, he told me he'd been trying himself to locate Garnet's grave unsuccessfully and hoped I would let him know if I located it. The clue here lay in the fact that Garnet's wife and infant son had died in 1857 at Fort Simcoe, then in Washington Territory, now the state of Washington. She was a native of New York City. Learning the name of her father, who was a broker in New York, I fired a salvo of letters at all the cemeteries in the New York area which existed in the 1860s, and there were about 18 of them. Sure enough, the records of Greenwood Cemetery, Brooklyn, revealed that in the lot of George Nelson on the 28th of August, 1865, were interred the remains of Robert S. Garnet, no mention was made of his rank in the Confederate Army, which had been removed from some part of Maryland. Needless to say, Garnet's wife and son are also buried there, as are his father-in-law and mother-in-law. Uh, of interest is the fact that nothing on the lot indicates that Garnet himself lies there, although a tall shaft commemorates Mrs. Garnet and their child. Uh, and I have found since that uh, the interment was very secret. His uh, body was sent up by boat and removed and put in under the ground and nothing was done. And his mother-in-law and father-in-law died in the 80s. and. Uh, He's still there without anything to commemorate the fact other than this simple little notation in the cemetery record. If I have learned anything in the course of my research on these generals, it is to distrust anything previously published, no matter how authoritative the work is supposed to be. For example, Dictionary of American Biography than which there is supposed to be no witcher, to coin a cliché, states categorically that John Bankhead Magruder was born in Winchester, Virginia, 
on 15 August 1810, and that he never married. As a matter of fact, he was born in Port Royal on the 1st of May 1807, which is plainly shown by the matriculation <coughs> records of the University of Virginia. The statement <coughs> that he never married must have come as something of a shock to his great-granddaughter, a highly respected member of Baltimore society. <laughs> Again, the same source recites, or recites that Daniel Whisaker Adams was born in Lynchburg, Virginia, that he was educated at the University of Virginia, that he was educated at the University of Virginia, and that he died leaving a widow but no children. Besides misspelling his middle name, Adams was born in Frankfort, Kentucky, quite a ways away. He never attended the University of Virginia, and one of his children, a son by his second marriage, still lives in Old Fort, North Carolina, while an older daughter lives in Washington. To top it all, by his first marriage, he had several other children, one of whom became a Methodist bishop. Taking her cue from General Marcus J. Wright's General Officers of the Confederate Army, which recites that General V.J.B. Girardi was born in Georgia, Ella Lon completely omits Girardi from her foreigners in the Confederacy. Girardi was, in fact, born in the village of Lau, Department of Oran, France, and was not brought to this country until he was seven years old. With this sort of thing, I could continue indefinitely. <coughs> Suffice it to say, however, that many of the standard biographical reference works exhibit a woeful want of research in original sources one so-called authority merely copying from an earlier one. This propensity is carried almost to an absurdity in Magruder's case, where it can be readily demonstrated that the incorrect place and date of his birth was handed down from Appleton's Encyclopedia of American Biography, published in 1886, to Confederate Military History, published in 1899, to Encyclopedia of Virginia Biography, published in 1915, to Dictionary of American Biography, published in 1933. Thus, original error, oftentimes repeated, becomes fact. Nor are co even contemporary newspaper accounts not suspect on occasion. It is obvious from the footnotes that accompanied the sketch of Dan Adams and D.A.B. that the author relied very largely on his obituary in the New Orleans National Republican. Totally incorrect. Wading through this sort of thing for four years has transmuted a previously, uh, what I've always liked to believe, a naive nature into one darkly suspicious of even a paralyzed oath taken on a cistern full of Bibles. My response to an item of uh, volunteered information, which I used to accept at face value, now is, where's the documentary evidence? On the other hand, as Mr. Newman stated, I have a good deal of documentary evidence in my files, which I wouldn't want to publish or have published. Again, on the other hand, and again in a lighter vein, I want to put in the record a letter of my good friend Rebel Peacocks on my behalf to a fellow insurance executive in Hillsborough, North Carolina. 
I will read John's request and his address C's response verbatim, written on, in May 15, 1952, to Mr. James W. Cheshire of Hillsborough, North Carolina. Dear Jim, Mr. Sam Kirkland of Hillsborough lives at the old Kirkland ancestral home, and I have been told he has the family Bible. I wish to ascertain on behalf of a friend of mine the middle name of General William W. Kirkland, and wrote Mr. Sam for this information some days ago, but haven't had any reply from him. Will you be kind enough to drop by his home and get the information? I will certainly appreciate your kindness. With best wishes, sincerely yours, John R. Peacock. Comes this response. En route calling upon the hail trade. May 21st, 1952. Dear John, as soon as I got your letter, I phoned Samuel Simpson Kirkland, resident at and owner of Airly, the Kirkland Ancestral Manor, and inquired the full name of his father's brother, General Kirkland. He said the general was named William Webby Kirkland. But Samuel, like other and more famous Sams, is a man of greater muscular substance than intellectual. And when asked to spell out the middle name, said he supposed it was spelt Whitby, which, come to think of it, is an excellent way to spell Whitby. Since that time, I have diavered and endeavored to get Sam to look him up in the Bible, but without success, but will continue my efforts, and if successful, will write you. Meanwhile, you can be reasonably certain the center name is either Whitby spelt Whitby, or Whitby, spelt Whitby. <laughs> or possibly Whitby, if it ain't actually Whitby. <coughs> we'll try to get the straight of it for you, and it is a pleasure. You are as J.W. Cheshire. I shall hope that none of Samuel Simpson Kirkland's kinfolks are represented here tonight, which might prove embarrassing for either Mr. Cheshire or Mr. Peacock. As far as I am concerned, I'm in the clear because I got it all secondhand. In closing, let me say that a project which started out ostensibly as a matter of historical research rapidly and unconsciously developed some of the most rewarding friendships which I have known, most of them originally by correspondence. Not the least rewarding by any matter of means happened to me two nights ago in High Point, North Carolina, where I addressed the North Carolina Civil War Roundtable. Uh, my uncle, or great uncle, commanded a brigade, who was a member of the class of 1860 at West Point, commanded a brigade of Getty's division of the Sixth Corps, Army of the Potomac, and uh, was severely wounded, as a matter of fact, down here at Spotsylvania. But during the as you all know, the Sixth Corps was involved in the Shenandoah Valley Campaign, and at the Battle of Cedar Creek, Major General Ramser of the Confederate Army was mortally wounded and taken to uh, Sheridan's headquarters, Bell Meade, where he breathed his last hours amongst his old West Point classmates and, and schoolmates. And uh, my great uncle wrote a very touching letter to his bride, uh, the day after, which I have, uh, because they had been quite friendly, at, at uh, very friendly at, at the military academy. And two nights ago at uh, 
At High Point, I met General Ramsewers, great nephew. Had a most, we had several drinks together, clasped hands across the bloody chasm, and as far as uh, we were concerned, sealed the end of the Civil War. I, I, one of those things that wouldn't happen once in a lifetime. It was really quite an experience. And this has been also. Gentlemen, thank you indeed for the privilege afforded me of addressing you. Since this is a regular meeting of the round table, and since it has always been the custom at meetings of the Civil War round table, immediately following the speech, the meeting is open for discussion. And uh, I'm Mr. Felton. <coughs> Well, I, perhaps you misunderstood me. It was Tyler whom I was... Uh, I found where Garnet was uh, buried, and I shared my information with a clerk of court down here. Are there some... Uh, well, I didn't know that you had completed your research on Garnet. Well, one never completes their research, Mr. Farmer, and anything I could learn about... Uh, I, I merely, however, was talking about my, my search for his grave, which I eventually did complete. Are there some uh, Garnet descendants in the vicinity? Mm -hmm. It was a large family, and there were a great many, I suppose there were a great many collateral, uh, he had no direct descendants. Well, thank you very much for telling me that. Warren Reader? Uh, where did you get your list of Confederate <clears throat> From the manuscript registers of appointments to the Confederate Army, with a part of the records of General Cooper's office, which are now, which were surrendered or turned over to the federal authority uh, when Cooper was embraced in the Johnson Compact in North Carolina, and which are now in the National Archives. Yes? Pickett. 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 Well, who is sure? 
heard anything else. I think it was definitely General Pickett. I don't think there's any question about that. Well, Mr. Johnson, I think uh, that Dr. Freeman stated rather categorically that it was General Pickett, didn't he? And, uh, or there could be no doubt that it was General Pickett, the well, way he wrote it. You said produce the evidence. I feel a little uneasy in making a statement, but I never heard that there was anybody else than Pickett. Well, neither have I, and I just <laughs> assume that the, the situation after the war, the, the feeling between General Pickett and General Lee and the, their meeting in uh, a Richmond hotel, uh, I don't think it could possibly have been other than General Pickett, although you have probably heard the amusing episode that, uh, that took place between General Wise and General Lee uh, in reference to General Johnson, General Bushrod Johnson, who was incidentally the only Confederate general officer buried in Illinois. Uh, I, yes, in effect, and he didn't like Johnson at all, and uh, you you recall the the incident. Well, apparently he didn't. I that's one of the minor mysteries of the war. Why General Lee? Uh, there are various side lights that you can throw on it, but none of them exactly add up to uh, why General Lee and General Pickett got this way. Uh, one of them, of course, presumably was uh, Pickett wrote a report after Gettysburg, which General Lee uh, asked him to destroy, including all copies, which uh, I guess we're all sorry that General Lee asked him to do that, but. Uh, because it might have thrown a lot of light on a lot of things, but Pickett always blamed General Lee for uh, putting him into that fight at Gettysburg, or that seems to be the point there. But I think that the, the reference that you spoke of was definitely, I don't think it could have been anyone else than General Pickett. Bill Clark? Excuse me, I don't didn't hear that. Did uh, what did you say? Well, that I think was another reason. I think General Lee felt he, that he failed him there, perhaps. But there must have been something back of that because that was a last-minute affair. Uh, as you probably know. A shad bait. But of course, so did Rosser and so did Rosser and so did Fitz Lee. Who, uh, those are some of the unresolved things that I don't suppose we'll ever know exactly what went through his mind. Yes. 
Well, I wasn't at, uh, unfortunately, at Richmond. Why don't I... Uh, I wish you'd state that, because I wasn't there and didn't hear what Dr. Freeman said. Dr. Freeman say so, just Not at the John Marshall, at his home. At his home. the garden party. It was the garden party. It may have been the last Civil War speech the doctor made, but he, he was most emphatic, and there was no doubt in uh, Freeman's mind that day that was Pickett to whom they referred. Joe Eisenhower? I'd like to know uh, how many of these 425 were killed during the war? And were there any of them that were colonels who were posted to make general? Well, Joe, I haven't got the statistics, but the attrition was somewhat over 100, although they weren't all killed. Some died of natural causes, and some resigned, and uh, Two were killed and two or three were killed in duels, euphemistically referred to as personal encounters. Uh, well, several, the, the question of who was a, as a, was a brigadier general and who wasn't is a sort of a, is sometimes gets into an acrimonious debate, but uh, the rank and command in the Confederate Army was based on one thing, and that was appointment by President Davis because all the, the laws read that way. And uh, confirmation by the Senate was, of course, another theoretical necessity. On the other hand, Congress was not in session all the time, and not a few officers were promoted from colonel to brigadier general during a period of time when Congress was not in session, were killed at the same time, and were never nominated to the Senate. On the other hand, there were a few who were posthumously promoted, were nominated, although promoted prior, Garnet was one of those, and uh, Zollicoffer was another, and there were quite a, quite a few of them like that. But the question of who was and who wasn't, it, it, I went by the, as I said, by these army registers, which General Wright, who for many years was, uh, Marcus G. Wright, I presume you all know, was an ex-Confederate brigadier who was appointed by the U.S. War Department as agent for the collection of Confederate records. And had it not been for him, been for, for Wright, uh, a great deal of what appears <coughs> in the Confederate records, or in the official records, would never have appeared as impoverished as part of it, as the Confederate side of it is. But uh, Wright spent probably 40 years of his life going down and trying to dig these things out and inducing families in the South to part with records that they had in their possession which appeared there and his researches in the war department he was the until his death in 1922 he was well over 90 he was the acknowledged expert a confederate brigadier himself of who was really entitled to the to the rank and who was not mr howard No, that was Tyler, the fellow I talked so much about. His only known occupation, except being listed as a clerk in the Baltimore City Directory, was his uh, uh, expedition, the Walker expedition in Nicaragua. Another question: Did you get photographs of all the generals? All but one, as I stated, except well, there some are, are. There's one or two that are photographs of portraits. Other, the, uh, the others are all photographs. I 
speech. Uh, well, I guess Councilman just spoke to us. Yes, sir. Oh, I was intrigued over what Mr. Warner had to say about this gentleman who came, I believe he said, from the Indian Territory up to Arkansas. And the other question I wanted to ask you is, uh, would you consider uh, General Earl Van Dorn and General William Walker dying in the service of the country or the southern states? Well, I, that's a good question. I think I said that they... <coughs> died in uh, personal encounter, that there were several who died in personal encounters. Of course, uh, Walker and, and uh, was killed by Marmaduke, and simply because he thought that Marmaduke had reflected on his courage, the Van Dorn circumstances were somewhat different. Well, not exactly. Well, it depends on whose story you read. The one, the, the, uh, the man who was born in, in at the Choctaw Agency was General Frank Armstrong, who after the war became, uh, had a, quite a long and distinguished career in government service and is buried in, Ar in Arlington now. Frank Armstrong, who uh, led a squadron of, of uh, his own regiment, at, he, was a, he was a stepson of General Percifer Smith, and Armstrong apparently had a lot of trouble making up his mind as to which side he should fight on, and he took a whack at it on the <coughs> federal side at First Manassas and did a good job, but something changed his mind, and he turned in his suit and went south and had a very distinguished career under Forrest. Well, was he a contemporary of uh, General Stan Wadey at the time of Elkhorn and the Armstrong was on uh, McCullough's staff at Elkhorn and was within 30 feet of him when he was shot. Uh, you might say, although the, his, the, his, the accident, he was born purely by accident at the Choctaw Agency because his father, who was in the regular U.S. Army, had, was stationed there at the time as Indian agent. He probably never knew anything about the Indian ter Territory then, although he was in the Indian service after the war in Cleveland's administration. No, at what's at what they was then called Choctaw Agency, now the uh, virtually abandoned village of Scullyville. Yeah, well, it's south. It's uh, about. It's, I've got all that dope, and I can't tell you exactly, but it's not far from Fort Smith. Uh, oh, 30 or 40 miles southwest of Fort Smith. Marshal Risman. Well, that is uh, the Confederacy envisaged the same sort of a situation that the United States Army has up to this day. That the, uh, there was a regular organization that was worked out on paper, and the full generals, with the exception of Kirby, Smith, and Hood, were generals of the regular army. That is uh, what we would call four-star generals, although the insignia was all the same for all the four grades of, of general officer in the Confederate Army. Then the, however, there were never, except for staff officers, there never were any appointments in the regular army. They had a staff organization complete, uh, and they had four, uh, six, four 
five, I should say, including Bragg, who was appointed Vice Albert Sidney Johnson, who was killed, generals. Everyone else was in the Provisional Army and held uh, rank as uh, was similar to the, vol the volunteers in the Union Army. They had no they had permanent volunteer rank, you might say. Uh, some of them. Some of them had temporary volunteer rank. And the question of who's of seniority in the Confederate Army is the hardest thing in the world to figure out because you had so many laws governing the, governing the appointment of general officers. Some were, uh, I think there were six or seven of them, and one man's commission might be senior to that of another man, but he might be ranked by the other man because he was only a a brigadier with temporary rank for service with volunteer troops or something like that. Oh, it's, it's quite confusing. But they were all volunteer officers except for the generals, except for those uh, five. Abe Geldhoff, I think, is first. But what was the procedure by which the generals like Fitzhugh Lee, Wesley Merritt, and Bill Wheeler obtained their commissions as generals in the Army after the war? Well, they were... President McKinley, in order to heal the breach, the volunteer organization was revived in the, in the Spanish War, and uh, just exactly as it was in the Civil War, and those men were appointed uh, major generals and brigadier generals of U.S. volunteers by McKinley in the same way that Lincoln appointed uh, dozens and scores and hundreds of volunteer generals in the... Were there others besides those three? Yeah, uh... Fitz Lee, quite a few oats of the 15th Alabama who wrote that the only good account of the charge on the round tops at Gettysburg on the second day, who was never a Brigadier General of Confederacy because he had his leg shot off, but he was a Brigadier General. Uh, not Rosser, but uh, yeah, there was Rosser. Well, Wheeler was another one. Uh, there was another cavalry general who, uh, oh, there were half a dozen or eight of them that, that uh, were appointed. It was their names I can't all of remember offhand. Greg, this Jardins. Mr. Warner, I recall, I recall the late James Street wrote that his favorite Confederate general was not General Lee, but General Weedy. Can you tell us if he was as picturesque as his name? Well, he was very picturesque. Uh, <laughs> it has been said about the Indians that uh, they were very dashing in a cavalry charge. General, but, who are you speaking of? Well, it was about General Stan Weighty. But the, the Indians did not stand very steady under artillery fire and were want to break and run when uh, the federal artillery got after them. Now, General Wadey personally was a good old Choctaw who uh, was born down in uh, one of the five civilized tribes. His record, uh, I would say, was unexceptional. He's not someone I think you could write a whole book about exactly. Oh, yes. He was born in Georgia before the Cherokees were removed. I should have said Cherokees rather than Choctaw. Lou Filas. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Bushrod Johnson was buried in Illinois. Uh, if he was buried in Illinois, isn't he buried in the cemetery? Is there any 
Significance as to his being buried in Illinois? Uh, I understand that uh, he hasn't buried in the cemetery proper, but on the outside of it. Do you have anything on that? Well, I, Mr. Felton, I am indebted to for conducting that research, and as I understand, he's buried right in the middle. In fact, he is in the middle of the cemetery, isn't he? Well, I noticed those pictures you sent me, it, it, uh, his, uh, their headstones in the background. He's, there's no fence. Uh, whether there was any feeling or not, his son had a farm nearby, which he was living at the time he died, and that's why he was uh, buried there. Mr. Warner, uh, this book of, uh, of uh, Northern Gentleman is very interesting. Uh, Oh, is that so? He was uh, his son made him competitive on he was a major general, he was in Tennessee, he was Bragg and Albert Sidney Johnson. He was born and bred in in uh, Massachusetts. He was buried here. Buried born in Barry, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he was buried here. Mm -hmm. He came superintendent of schools here. And I recall very distinctly he was one of the first men that attempted the experiment of producing rain by explosion. Is that so? Long white beard, yeah. in spite of his distinction, the children sit on called the old rainbow. I remember that. Is that so? <laughs> oh, very interesting. Mr. Howard again. I refuse to get into a discussion of that. <laughs> You'll have to excuse me. Pete Long. In the course of this, uh, although I know you followed the records as to who was a general, did you run across any interesting imposters, for instance, in the West or anywhere else, men who called themselves generals and weren't? Oh, there were hundreds of those. After the war, the, the uh, United Confederate veterans gave rise to a lot of generals, literally thousands of them, and uh, they the, if you you're, you all are familiar, I presume, with the Confederate Veteran, a magazine that was started in Nashville by an ex-Confederate soldier, a Confederate veteran, in 1893, and was published for 40 years. Uh, the editor, Sumner Cunningham, was a, a veteran in the Army of Tennessee and fought at Franklin and Nashville. He inveighed against those titles which were given after the war. The, United Confederate Veterans, when it was formed in the 90s by, with John B. Gordon as its first commander-in-chief, gave rise to an entire military hierarchy, and men who had never been anything but privates in the ranks became brigadier generals and major generals and lieutenant generals, and in, on Memorial Day and on all sorts of occasions, wore the uniforms thereof, and, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of them, uh, their, their posterity, uh, have the opinion that they were uh, legally appointed by Jefferson Davis, and it's a pretty difficult situation. And then, of course, as those men, a lot of men got older, they kept 
elevating themselves in rank and uh, <laughs> on the battlefield. It, it, it got to be kind of funny after a while, as a matter of fact. And I, I had some correspondence years ago with somebody down south who, uh, a newspaper man, I'm not sure it wasn't street, as a matter of fact, who said that his father or, or grandfather had been a, a cook who was drafted in, uh, had a Dickens of a time staying out of the army and finally was forced in. But by the time he died, everyone in town addressed him as Colonel. And uh, the, when he was, his obituary was printed, it was Colonel so-and-so of the such-and-such -such Mississippi. And, of course, uh, Street's sons will all probably say, well, my grand great-grandfather was a Colonel Lincoln veteran. It was quite a deal in those days, up until now. Well, this has been a grand and typical meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. Before we wind up, first of all, Bud, I want to give you a Civil War Roundtable pen. I mean, down in Arizona, you carry some little weight as Commissioner of State Patrol, but maybe in New Mexico, they'll give you a break if you're speeding because you're wearing that button. Thank you very much, sir. I'm very much obliged to uh, Our buses will pick us up tomorrow morning at 9.30, Fredericksburg time. If any of you don't have tickets for the various things in which we'll be participating in the next several days, I don't think George Lilly has had a chance to pick anything up. <coughs> you can see Bob Douglas or myself will take care of you. Are there any other comments? Uh, yes. One question, surely. Uh, Well, he had been appointed a full general early there. The uh, earliest rank in the regular army of the Confederacy was Brigadier General, and there were, <coughs> oddly enough, General Beauregard was, was senior to all the rest of them. At that time, General Lee was in the, <coughs> in the Virginia Army. Then the Confederate Congress changed, the Provisional Congress changed the rank to full general, and the original ranking was Samuel Cooper, by that is by date of seniority was Samuel Cooper first, A.S. Johnston second, R.E. Lee third, Joseph E. Johnson fourth, and P.G.T. Beauregard fifth. When Johnston was A.S. Johnson was killed at Shiloh, Bragg was appointed vice Johnston, but having a late, of course, a great deal later date of commission. Uh, then later, those were the only full generals of the regular army. Then Kirby Smith was made a, a full general in the Provisional Army by a law that was passed in 1863. And Hood was appointed a, a full general with temporary rank by still another law. But the ranking officer by seniority from the beginning of the war to the end was Samuel Cooper. However, General Bragg, after the Battle of Chickamauga, was elevated to the position of uh, military advisor to the president, uh, or command, practically commander-in-chief uh, of the Confederate Army, and for a period of time there was the ranking officer so far as power was concerned. Then at the very end of the war in February 1865, General Lee was made commander-in-chief, 
by which President Davis practically uh, resigned his powers as Commander-in-Chief. Lee was supreme for the last couple of months of the war. Oh, yeah, oh no, they, those full that you're speaking of the Union Army, presumably. The full generals were appointed in, the, in 1861, all of them except Kirby Smith and, uh, and uh, Hood. Well, what you'd call four-star generals is they were all, they all wore the same uniform exactly. No, his rank was his rank was no different. He he had no other appointment. He had the highest rank already. I beg your pardon. Congress passed a special law in reference to General Lee, in which, uh, without specifically naming him, it was intended that he should be appointed to, and he was appointed to it. But it didn't elevate his rank. He was appointed Commander in Chief which no one else had ever held. Well, his rank was exactly the same as it had been. It was just a special act of Congress creating not a rank, but, a, but an office. <laughs> the meeting is adjourned. <laughs>